dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad if I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of JB's Low Tech Podcast. We all love movies, we all love entertainment. And I've given you a look into some of it in the past with an associate director and a movie critic. Well, we're going to dwell a little deeper into how the movies are made here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Our summers are so short in Minnesota, it can be easy to forget about important safety measures. And when extreme heat is involved, safety is even more critical. Here are a few things to remember to keep you and your loved ones, including your pets, safe and comfortable. One, remember to not leave your pets and kids in your vehicle. Two, always stay hydrated in hot weather. Three, avoid exercise during the hottest times of the day. Four, stay in air conditioning as much as possible. Five, when traveling, stay sky aware. Check the forecast, prepare for unsafe driving conditions, thunderstorms and tornadoes. High temperatures kill hundreds of people every year, but most heat-related deaths and illnesses are preventable. If we all slow down, take some time, check on our loved ones, and enjoy the beautiful season. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything until you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, I had given you guys a glimpse into Hollywood from many different angles. And today I want to continue with that with a CFO in Hollywood. And today's guest is Tim Totora. How you doing, Tim? Pretty good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. So, um, we were kind of chatting before. How does someone be, and uh, how does someone rise to the level of, uh, of of being a CFO or, you know, financing movies? And can you kind of give a background, uh, a little bit into your background? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the the first question is, how do you get there? And the answer is a lot of hard work, you know, staying connected, building a network, staying connected to that work, that network, and um, a lot of luck, and all kind of in equal measure, right? 
Um, but at the same time, sort of keeping your antenna out and paying attention to the luck opportunities that are coming your way. You, you can't just be lucky and that's it. But nonetheless, um, my background, I started in 1985 as a tape op in a recording studio. I was a freshman in college. And uh, I, I, went, I, I worked while I was in college. I worked as a tape op and then a recording engineer. And then I graduated with an advertising degree, worked for a couple of years at an ad agency, McCann Erickson, on a movie account on Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures. And then that just got me further away from the creative. And I wanted to be more in the trenches of actual filmmaking. And I quit that job to become a PA on a TV show called Dream On. And that was in 1992. And worked in physical production for... I mean, literally from 1992 until 2009, I was, we were about to have a kid. I was mar recently married and transitioned away from uh, traveling and all that goes with actually being in the trenches and worked as a CFO. And while I was in production, I was a production executive for Oprah Winfrey's film unit here in L.A., not the TV show, but the feature film and mm -hmm. long-form movies that we did for ABC. And then I worked, I ran the Benji business for almost a decade and did a bunch of work for a, uh, a division at Mandalay Entertainment, which is Peter Guber's company, and did a couple movies for them and was a line producer on Jackass and Home Improvement and you know, a bunch of big titles over the years. So, and then since 2009, I've been in the CFO seat. So that's kind of my trajectory. That's how I got to where I was. Um, how do you get to this job? You know, Hollywood is a referral business. You have to, if you're going to get the first job, you've got to know someone. And, it, and I knew no one. I, my parents were Orange County entrepreneurs. I grew up in Orange County, California, so I was close. You know, when I moved to Los Angeles, I was close. I used to say I was close enough where my parents wouldn't drop in out of the blue, but I was also, I mean, I was far enough away where my parents wouldn't drop in out of the blue, but I was close enough where I could throw my laundry in the back seat and go use their washing machine. <laughs> it's always you nice. kind of. The, the, the plus of both sides. But um, the point is, it, you know, I knew no one. I, my parents were both entrepreneurs in the printing and travel industry. And um, I had to figure out how to get connected. And the way I got connected was I started working as a tape op in a recording studio. And then that led to credits on some, you know, some records that were notorious or at least well-known. I worked on uh, Poison's first record and a couple of other big names which got me an interview when I graduated with a degree in advertising at an ad agency. I wanted to go work in marketing. And um, I did that for a little while and realized it wasn't really what I wanted to do, uh, as I said earlier. But along the way, I developed a relationship, developed a relationships with a lot of different people in the industry and did informational interviews to try to figure out where my path was going to be. And as I was doing that, I was, I, I was doing two things. I learned very early on, this is what I talk about in my current book, which is, you know, you have to build a network in this business. And the way you do that is through informational interviews. And you build in, in a network of informationals by understanding who the players are on the shows that are actually getting made and how the industry is structured. So what I did was I did informational. And it was really simple. I asked a simple question. How did you get to where you are? I love the work you're doing. I want to do it at some point in my career. Tell me your story. And then I just shut up and listened for right. 20 to 30 minutes. <laughs> and in that conversation, when I was finished, I would ask, I would play back a couple of high points, you know, maybe a couple of sentences. Oh, it's so interesting. You did this, you did that. I love, it's interesting. Do you know anybody who could help me out that you can refer? And I would ask for a referral. And then I would go talk to that person. And I would just do it again 
And in those informationals, I never asked for a job. I never asked them to read my script, come to my showcase, or watch my material on YouTube, although it didn't exist when I was coming up. But I always tell directors, never ask, and writers and actors and all of them, don't ever ask them for a favor. Just You have to show up, be relevant, be researched, know what they've worked on, know some other people they've worked with, and just ask the simple question. People want to talk about themselves in Hollywood. Let them do it. And when you're finished, ask for a referral. And then at the end, you say, look, I'm Tim. I'm currently looking for a job as a PA. If you know anybody, a PA in television or features, whatever. And if you know anybody who's looking for that job, feel free to throw my resume around. And then I send them a thank you note in the mail. I mean, snail mail. I don't do email. Right. And then I would send them my email and my resume. And I literally got a call a month later from somebody who was looking for a PA at a sound facility here in L.A., and I worked there for three days. And, you know, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. So it's networking and it's luck and it's being uh, – it's understanding the industry and being curious, working hard. Yeah, it's uh, – <clears throat> your story is pretty similar to a friend of mine who's a um, associate director in, in Hollywood and he's, and he's worked associate closely. Associate director or an assistant director? Assistant director. And yeah, they're, they're different, but and what your friend does is a really important and guild job, and actually it sounds like it's an assistant job, but it's really not. It's actually a very well-paid and extremely important part of the business. Right. Yeah, he, um, he literally just said, told us one day after we all got out of college and started our lives that, and he was working as a doorman here in Minneapolis, and he just said, I'm going to go and see if I can do movies with Spike Lee. And, oh, good for him. <laughs> and he somehow contacted Spike and, you know, kind of hung around and the caterer got fired and they looked to him to be the, the, the I, I think there's another word for it, the crafts person or whatever. And, craft service. Right, craft service. And he took it. Sight unseen. Yeah. He thought that was his entry into movie making. So, Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I say to all of my students, you have to say yes to everything. Unless it's illegal or amoral, and you're the one who has to decide what that amoral is, if, unless it's one of those two things, you say yes to everything. I mean, I, I delivered hemorrhoid pads to a producer's house at three o'clock in the morning after I had delivered film to the lab that night. The coordinator called me up and said, okay, you got to get out of bed. I literally had just hit the pillow. I think I fell asleep. She called me up and said, you got to get out of bed. You need to go buy tucked medicated pads. Buy the green, not the red or the blue. If you buy the red or the blue, you'll be fired. Buy a roll of toilet paper. Needs to be unscented, unprinted. If you buy the scented and printed, you'll be fired. Bring them over to the producer's house. And I'm literally getting dressed to go back out to the store, buy these things. I had petty cash from the show. Mm -hmm. Um, I picked them up. I drove them to the producer's house. And it was always mysterious to me, you know, if you're a producer and you have this problem, you're asking a 25-year-old to come tell the world that you have a hemorrhoid problem. Do you really want that? But he did, and I did, and I always said yes to everything that wasn't amoral and that wasn't illegal. And I got the reputation of the guy who would get it done, get it done quick, and not ask questions. 
And the first thing I did the next day is I called up all my friends and said, you wouldn't believe who has the worst fucking hemorrhoid problem in Hollywood. <laughs> right. Why would he, why would he want you, that to be known out there in the first place? Yeah, I never understood that, but that's, that's neither here nor there. He did, and it was my benefit because the person I worked for was like, dude, you did me a solid at 3 o'clock in the morning. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm literally on four or five hours of sleep the next day. She's like, thank you. And I kept getting called back, and I kept getting promoted, and I kept moving my way up through the ranks, just like your friend yep. who became a craft service person on whatever show and worked their way up into being a really important job, which is an assistant director. Yeah, he's he's done TV shows and all uh, cable shows and all types of things, and it's just all on a whim, and then him saying yes to, yeah, I can figure out, what to get and he said what sealed the deal was uh good old minnesota hot apple cider <laughs> <laughs> he so, realized that that's the thing that people wanted right he's he they were shooting outside people were cold and he made up uh hot apple cider with cinnamon sticks and he said people went that's crazy amazing. yeah <laughs> So that's the kind of thing you, you have to get under people's skin and you do that just by being smart and listening and keeping your antenna out. Let me ask you this. And is, this is the novice in me asking this question. And I hope I don't offend you. What is uh, the difference between a producer and uh, a financial, uh, you know, a financial person for movies? Um, in some cases, there is no difference, but by and large, a producer is a man or a woman whose job it is, there's basically three verticals within producing. One is you're a story person, you're developing material, you're finding it, you're getting life rights, or you're getting rights to books and people's stories. The second one is someone who's actually a, um, a creative producer who's on the ground managing creative. Uh, as far as the studio is concerned. Working on a movie is an all-encompassing thing, and you can't do multiple. You can do one at a time, that's it. So the studio needs someone on there who's, who's representing their um, idea, their creative, the idea that got sold. Mm-hmm. And the third one is a physical logistics producer. So the first one is a development development executive. The second one is a producer in the in quotes, the, the actual producer, not an executive producer, not an associate, not... I mean, literally, producer. That's all it said. Brian Grazer is a producer. He will not take any other title, likely not, because that's what he does. He produces movies. He's in charge of creative. He's in charge, to some extent, of financing. And then there's a logistics line producer. That person is, is in charge of bringing movie, I mean, money and materials and people into a location so the creatives can actually do their thing. And that's a very uh, specific job. There's a lot to know. And there's a lot to learn. It's stuff you learn over time and reading every bloody contract you've ever seen from the Writers Guild, WGA, DGA, and just being in the trenches. It's not brain surgery. It's just doing it over and over and learning and thinking forward and telegraphing human behavior a little bit about what you think people are going to do and then comparing that to here's what you can do within the confines of money, the law, and the guild agreements that you're working under, right? That's line producer. But a, but a producer is a person, using the simple Brian Grazer example, the reason I use Brian Grazer because you'll almost never see an executive producer or associate producer next to him because I've actually heard him say, I'm a producer, I don't do anything else. I don't direct, I don't write, I don't act, I don't do anything, I produce. He brings money, he brings story, 
and he brings uh, he brings an executive or some kind of structure within distribution to the table. That's what a producer does. And then there's financiers who can be a studio, it can be a foreign distributor, it can be a domestic distributor, it could be uh, private equity that comes out of some fund that came from God knows anywhere. It could be a dentist working out in Minneapolis making a lot of money and wants to tell his friends at dinner that he's in the movie business. So, or she's in the movie business. Right. So, you know, being a, a financier can come from just about anywhere, and uh, a producer's job is to find those financiers, whether they're financing a movie on spec, or in the case I gave as, you know, a, an independent producer who's just raising money, um, or you're actually going to a distributor in the domestic space, in the foreign space, and saying to a domestic distributor, I will give you these rights for this amount of time for this movie. This is gonna, who's going to be in my movie? Here's how much money I'm going to spend. And, and you're going to give me X percentage of the budget to be able to uh, own the distribution rights to that movie for some period of time. And then you go to foreign distributors and do the same thing. And you cobble together 100% of the cost of your movie. And then you go to a bank because it's going to cost you more than 100% of the cost of the movie to make it. Because you're going to have to put bonds up. You're going to have to put up deposits. You're going to have to front load a whole bunch of cash. So you're probably going to spend about 110, 110% of the total spend. You have to go find a total of 110% of the total spend. And that's what a producer does. They put all those pieces together to bring cash up front to make the movie and then collect whatever tax credits that might be coming down the road, getting back deposits that come from the guild and everybody else, and then getting those bonds back that you might have to get back at the end. So that's a really convoluted and complicated explanation of an even more complicated book and a title. Right. When I left out the other one, which is the, the hanger-on. There are producers out there who are associate producers, executive producers, once in a while a producer, who are just, you know, uh, whoever, um, Bradley Cooper's friend, Lady Gaga's pal. It could be their manager. It could be their agent. It could be any number of people who get a credit, but they don't actually do anything. They show up, they get a credit. Sometimes they get paid in addition to get a credit, and if they get any of that, they likely are showing up to craft service and catering which is sort of my flippant way of saying they don't really do anything except show up and eat food and have an opinion, which, you know, whatever. If you can get paid to do that, God bless. You're doing better than most people. And I take it they have no financial skin in the game, personally? None. Zero. Okay. Honestly, I'll, I mean, I, I'm, I'm being flippant because I don't have a lot of respect for those people. Right. They show up. They don't really do anything. They don't provide any value. They are just collecting a salary because they're fucking grifters or they're, they're somehow corruptly connected to this process of filmmaking. And when I say corruptly, corruptly, meaning it could be someone's manager and that manager is getting a fee where they're not really doing anything and they're already getting paid from the people that they represent. So I don't much like them. I think they're mostly corrupt, but, you know, it is a part of any business, I suppose, and it is partially what happens in our business. So in that uh, line of, again, please excuse my novice terms, uh, in that line of succession, where is Tim? And uh, Well, it depends on what point in my career I was at. Right. Um, when I was working for Oprah and I was a production executive, I was, Oprah in, I was Oprah Winfrey's in-house producer. My job was to make sure that the, the people that we hired to produce 
and actually physically make the movies that we sold to ABC, the TV movies. We did a series called Oprah Winfrey Presents, and it was based on books. And at the time, no one had done it, and it wasn't like it was easy. It was very difficult convincing the network to make a movie based on a book and not based on some rip-from-the-headline, salacious story that was part of television for 20 or 30 years prior to us making Oprah Winfrey Presents. So my job was to make sure that the movies got delivered on budget, on creative, on time, and delivered at the level that Harpo Films and Oprah Winfrey expected. So I sat over the producers and the production managers and the line producers and everybody who was in the trenches and made sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. And the movie was going to be delivered as we had said it was going to be delivered. So that's a production executive. So I was sitting over the producers. When I went in to be a, a, a production manager on Jackass, I was a guy who was in charge of making sure that the cast got where they, you know, the nine guys who were in the Jackass um, cast, mm -hmm. making sure that they had the materials and everything was contractually set up, right? Every place you shoot, everybody you have on frame, everybody you talk to, everybody who's written anything for a movie, no matter what it is, whether it's Jackass or it's a narrative, uh, actually a written screenplay, you have to go collect the rights to all of those people who show up on screen. It's not just like you show up and a bunch of dudes make a movie in the woods and, and it's all going to be fair use. There is no fair use argument for anything in Hollywood or in any kind of content creation. You have to collect the rights for everybody. And if you do not, there is not a distributor on the planet who will ever touch your movie. If you are a filmmaker and you want to sell something to a distributor and you say, oh yeah, it's fair use, they will escort you to the door. They will say, thank you very much, Mr. Amateur. Have a nice day. Come talk to us when you get those rights. So a line producer's job is to make sure that all of that, and a production manager, is to make sure that all of that is done properly by all the departments. And at this point in my career, I'm a CFO now. And so what I do is we hire the, um, the producers who actually make the movies wherever they're made. A lot of what I do now is made in Canada. Lots of TV movies for Lifetime at Hallmark. Mm -hmm. And my job is to close the gap between when we're going to spend the money and when the network's going to pay us, and when the foreign distributor is going to pay us. And those gaps can sometimes be as little as 90 days and as much as a year and a half. So I have to go find the money from the bank. I have to go find the money from some financier, whether it's um, closing tax credit gap, whether it's closing a funding gap or a cash flow gap or whatever. My job is to make sure we, that we have the right amount of money to make whatever movie that the producers say they're going to make. And that's what I do. I go find money for movies. So... <clears throat> so you're a rainmaker for movies, and uh, everybody loves you. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a rainmaker. I'm the guy, the, the producer's the rainmaker to the extent that they go out and they figure out what kind of creative uh, a, a buyer, a studio or a network or distributor wants to buy. They go find a screenplay. They craft that screenplay or they craft a story into a screenplay, and they make a sale somewhere. That's the rainmaker. It's the man or woman who actually can get stuff sold to a distributor or to a studio or to some financier. Um, I come in, once they make a sale and once they have distribution paper, I figure out how to close the gap of financing. There's always a financing gap, no matter what it is. As I said earlier, you, on average, you need about 110% of whatever your spend is. If you're going to spend $10 million, you, you probably need 11 million in those kinds of numbers, probably more like 10 and a half or $10.6 million to make a movie between deposits and 
cash flow with um, various incentives you're going to get, you're going to have to spend more money than it actually costs. You're going to get some of that back at the end. It's going to grind down to be about $10 million when you're finished, assuming you're on budget, right? So right. my job is to go close that gap. The people who actually find the place to sell a movie, and I won't work in private equity. There's lots of producers out there who will go around and say, hey, man, we're going to make a movie. It's going to be amazing. Um, whatever. Uh, Jim Carrey's doing his first serious role. It's going to be great. It's all on spec. We're going to spend $5 million and we're going to get $50 million from Harvey Weinstein at Sundance. It's going to be amazing. I don't do any of that. That's bullshit. <laughs> um, that is gambling. That's not a strategy. It's gambling. And I, and I work for people who don't gamble. I work for people who make movies for a living. And when you, if you're going to finance a movie, a movie needs to have a distributor, it needs to have a domestic and foreign distributor, or you at least need to have a foreign distributor that's going to cover at least 90% of the cost of your picture, at least 70% of it. And the rest comes from tax credits and selling to domestic. Why do so you, it's a formula. Right. And that's what I do. Why do you uh, need to have foreign investors? don't necessarily need to have foreign investors, but you do need to have a foreign sale. So the way the industry is structured, the world is carved up into a bunch of different territories, right? North America is the U.S. and Canada, mm -hmm. and there's Mexico, which is really Latin America, and it's everything from the Mexican border all the way to the tip of Argentina, and that's considered to be Latin America. And then there's Europe, and then within Europe, there's a bunch of different larger territories like England, France, Germany, Italy. Uh, there's one other that roots me at the moment. Uh, there's five big territories within Europe. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's Asia. And then within Asia, there is essentially Japan. And everything else is tiny dollars and China's nothing. So a lot of people, but you got to play with the CCP, and that's not really a thing unless you're uh, Universal or Sony or a big, huge conglomerate. And even then, they're getting 50% of their total um, uh, gross box office in China taken by a local distributor that's owned by the government. The government could, in fact, come in and shut you down. But anyway, uh, Japan is a big market, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to make a movie, the U.S., the domestic distributor is not ever going to finance 100% of your picture. They will finance up to 50, 60, maybe 70% of the cost of your movie, and they're going to expect you to find the rest of it from uh, some other source. And when I say 50%, that's on the high side. Um, and when I say I've seen deals where it's, the domestic distributor comes in for as much as 70, it's extremely uncommon. It's really 50% or less. They expect you to make up the rest from foreign sales, foreign, uh, foreign distributors, and some kind of tax incentive. So you gotta, you got to pull all those three pieces together. So you don't necessarily need foreign investors. But you need a foreign buyer who's going to go out and sell into these foreign territories, into Japan, France, England, uh, Germany, Italy, the, the big territories around the world. And that's that's how that that's the reason there's foreign um, there's foreign buyers. And some of that has to do with domestic distributors just not wanting to pay for the 100 percent of your movie. Otherwise, they're going to own the damn thing outright. What's the point of involving you and giving you all the money if they if they can? own it themselves. So that's the reason why you have a foreign distribution, a distribution or financing. Do um, you also mentioned uh, filming in Canada? And this is kind of yeah. off subject, but I always wondered why a lot of things are being filmed in Canada these days. Is it a financial Simple. reason or? Simple. It's 
finance. It's a tax incentive. So there are three things that go into, or three big buckets that go into the financing of a movie. Who's your domestic distributor? Who's your foreign distributor? And what kind of tax incentives are you getting from the jurisdictions around the world? So foreign and domestic distributors are obvious. That's things like domestic is, are things like a, a studio, like uh, Universal, Sony, Warner Brothers. Uh, foreign distributors are like uh, Canal Plus, and uh, ITV is a big uh, British distributor in, um, in oh, the whole of Europe, but in particular in Great Britain. BBC is another. There's a whole slew of, um, of domestic and foreign distributors, and a bunch of smaller ones as well. Um, the third component is some kind of tax incentive. So depending on where you shoot around the world, Canada is a big contributor. Atlanta, Georgia is another one. Georgia, really, generally. There's an incentive in Georgia, but a lot of it happens in Atlanta because of the infrastructure that's there. There was an incentive in, in, um, in Michigan. There's one in New York. There's one in California. There's, there's one in South Carolina. There's, one, there's kind of one in every state in the union. Some are better than others. New Mexico has a great tax incentive. Canada has an amazing one. Britain has one. Germany had, but I think that went away with the fraud with Kirsch and all those people. But there are different incentives around the world. Those incentives can range anywhere from 12% and as much as 50% of your total aggregate spend. So if you're making a movie for a million dollars and you can get a grant, a tax credit, or a rebate from a state at the rate of 50%, you only have to find $500,000 a $500,000 sale from a distributor in the U.S., and the balance can come from actually from that tax incentive. The other $500,000, if it's a 50% credit, could come theoretically from an incentive. So um, Canada has a very complicated structure called CAVCO. It's an acronym for Canadian Audiovisual something or other. I forget. I haven't read it in years. But they have a system within the CAVCO agreement or CAVCO legislation to promote local um, producing of content inside Canada by Canadian producers, mm -hmm. they will pay a percentage as a rebate for your labor spend that you spend on actual labor in Canada. It can be anywhere from 12% up to 52% at one point. I think Halifax in Nova Scotia had a 52% tax credit between provincial and federal. So that's why a lot of it's shot in Canada. They have an extremely complex, robust, and almost bulletproof system for having production exist within their, from their, their federal and provincial um, economies. And the reason they do it is because for every dollar that we, every time we go spend money in a, in a, a state or a province, we bring millions of dollars, hundreds of jobs, and that money mostly stays locally inside the state province or the federal district in which we're working in. And they're, they're transient businesses. They come in, they work for anywhere from, you know, 12 weeks to maybe even 12 months, and then they go away. So it's not like a business that is um, stood up inside a province like gas manufacturing or you're building mattresses or cars or whatever you're doing. You actually build a physical plant that the local province can basically, I'm being, again, flippant, where the province can say, oh, you're not going to leave us, piss off. You just spent a billion dollars building all this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. We come in, we rent everything locally, we rent it short term, we come in, we spend millions, and we leave. So they want us to come spend the money because it turns into real dollars locally in their, in their jurisdiction. And that's why the tax credits exist. Yeah, I, the 
uh, 80s and early 90s, Minnesota was a hot spot. And somehow the politicians screwed it up. And <laughs> rarely is there. It was. What's that? Actually, I wouldn't say the politician. It was. It was. I, I worked on Mighty Ducks too. Actually, not in Minnesota. I worked on it here in California. Actually, um, I had a small but, role in Mighty Ducks too. <laughs> I'm that's hilarious. I'm that's an African American hockey player, and uh, they needed a co- an assistant coach for Team Jamaica. <laughs> and, uh, oh, cool! You can see me very quickly dancing on the bench. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, the reason Minnesota was, or Minneapolis in particular, was a a hot spot. It wasn't the politicians that screwed it up. Um, it was actually the unions that screwed it up. So what happened was L.A. and New York had really well-organized and, and uh, very expensive union agreements. And you couldn't work in California or New York without being uh, without making your movie on in a union. Mm-hmm. You could make small ones, but anything over $500,000, you would get converted into being a union shop, and your, your rates would double, and your contributions to TH and W were huge, uh, as much as 50% of the spend of each individual. So if someone made 100 bucks, you were paying 150 for that person between the labor and then the cost into the PH and W plus the federal and state cost. So what happened was, in the 90s, producers, or late 80s, producers started to figure out, hey, wait a minute, there's all these places around the country, like Minneapolis and Chicago and Portland and Wilmington, North Carolina, and Miami, Florida, and to some extent in New Mexico and a little bit in Texas, and there were these pockets of production that existed where there were some assets as far as grip, electric, camera, shooting locations, and there were these pockets of crew that mostly were commercial-based, right? They were doing a lot of commercials. And then they came in and said, well, wait a minute, we can do those. We can work with those people locally, no union. We can work non-union. And there was a push from the L.A. and New York union. In fact, I had the head of, who's now the head of the union in, um, in, in, in the international with the IA say to me, because I had asked him, how come you guys are cracking down on all these small jurisdictions around the country? And he's like, we want everything to come back to L.A. and New York. We're tired of getting here and shit from our members locally. And um, they did exactly that. They went in and organized all these places. And then all of a sudden, Minneapolis was too expensive, and the crew wouldn't work, and the the work got driven out. And the producers went, okay, we'll go to the next place. And actually, uh, 10 years on, I wound up working in the Czech Republic in Prague for a year because producers kept going further and further east after um, Eastern Europe opened up. It was, it was uh, Hungary for a while, then it was Prague, and then it was Sofia, and then it was Bratislava, and it just kept going further and further east until actors were like, no, we're not going there. And then it kind of all came to an end. How, how difficult was it to work in those countries? It actually wasn't difficult at all. It was, it was a, it was a, uh, it's, it's a different way of working for sure. It's not as organized as here, uh, depending on where you work. Mexico is probably one of the most corrupt places I've ever worked in my life. Um, working in, uh, the Czech Republic was had its had its its how do I describe it? It had its corruption, but it wasn't as openly and nakedly corrupt as it is in places like Mexico and to some extent um, other parts of the world. Um, but you know, for example, instead of lining the pockets of some official in the Czech Republic or in Eastern Europe, because there's a corruption was a big problem there for a half century, so people get very angry. 
So what they do is they'll say, look, we don't want you to line our pocket, but you need to drop 50 Macintosh workstations on this particular office of the government because we haven't had a, com- a new computer here in 25 years and our stuff's old. So we drop a pallet of uh, Apple iBooks or I, uh, whatever those big colorful things were in the 90s. I forget what they were called. But we dropped a pallet of them onto a location, and that was our version of grass, right? It's just different. Here we pay a, a permit fee. It's well-organized. It's expensive, but you know where to go. You know who to pay. You're paying the government directly as opposed to there. You pay a very small um, permit fee, which literally is 30 or $40 uh, with the U.S. equivalent. But then you drop a pallet of computers into an office that needs it. You know, so really the cost is the same. It's $2,000 here in the permit fee. It's $2,000 there to go buy a bunch of Macs for people. Has there, uh, is there still a lot of um, corruption as far as like happen to deal with governments and whatnot if you film uh, overseas? I, I can't say because I haven't worked in Eastern Europe I, the last movie I made in Prague was in 2002. Um, so I can't say, to be honest with you. Um, my guess is it's probably very similar, probably not all that different. Uh, Mexico, last time I was there was 2008 or seven. It is as corrupt as any other. It, Mexico was a failed nation and who, whose corruption is run by the government and at, at sort of the second tier and by the local cops on the top tier. So you're constantly being hit up by the people who are supposedly there to protect you. And when I say hit up, I mean like for $5,000, you know, just out of the blue. It's like, oh, you didn't get the right permit, but if you pay me $5,000, I'll go get you the right permit. Or you drive a fuel truck to the, um, to the gas station to go load up with, you know, 300 liters of, um, of unleaded and 300 liters of diesel, which they'll bring back to base camp to, to fill the generator and make electricity and all the rest of it. And we'll get pulled over by the cops, and they'll line up all their friends, empty the fueler, and it goes back to the gas station filled up, and we get to take it. So for every two tanks of gas, we get to use one. The other tank goes to the cops. I mean, that's, that's literally the kind of graph that goes on there. And they arrest all, they'll arrest all your drivers at 5 o'clock in the morning for driving through some small town, and you've got to give them a couple thousand bucks, and they'll let the guys out of jail and your, your, your equipment out of, um, out of impound. So... I can't honestly say in Eastern Europe if it's as corrupt as it was, if, it, if it's more organized than it is, because all the work I've been doing for the past 13 years has been in North America, in, uh, in the United States and Canada. And those jurisdictions are well-documented. Uh, they are uh, they're well-organized. The systems are open. You know, you can call it corruption and graft if you want, but they call it a fee and they call it a tax, which I guess some people would call that corruption, but whatever. It's, it's well organized, it's above board, and you're actually paying the government, not some person who's just ripping you off. So is that added cost to the, the actual cost of making the, the film? It's not added to the extent that it isn't unknown. So when we go in and budget movies, we budget for graph. We budget for you know, 3,000 liters of gas working in Mexico a week as opposed to 1,500 liters of gas to run a production that's the size of two or 300 people, right? So it's not that it's an additional expense that comes out of the blue because we budget for it. It's known we make a lot of movies all over the world. We all share. 
we tell we we um, compare stories from someone who just came out of a particular jurisdiction, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to work in wherever, you're going to spend money on this. Like in Japan, there are these local um, prefecture fees you have to pay in addition to the state and the federal. So if you don't know that, uh, you would you, you probably would come out of the blue, and you got to go figure it out." So we ask questions of other people who are making other movies in other places in the world and say, how do you budget for this? Or we talk to a local fixer whose job it is to budget for that local jurisdiction. So it's not necessarily above and beyond the budget, but could they be less expensive to make? Sure, probably. But I don't know that it's any, I don't know that it's any more than a 1% rounding error in the total budget, to be honest with you. But when you're spending $10 million, 1% of $10 million is still hundred grand. That's real money. Right, hundred thousand dollars to five people is still ten is fifty thousand bucks. I'm sorry, it's twenty thousand dollars. Simple math, right? Still twenty grand. That's a lot of money to somebody. So, is it more than one or two or five percent, depending on where you are? You know, it may be as much as five percent. I don't. I can't imagine in most places. At least my experience is in most places, it's not more than one or two percent. When these movies are being made and you're involved. Are you on site? Are you back in Hollywood? Until I, so both. At this point in my career, I am in L.A. I don't travel. I have an 11-year-old. Um, I'm a single dad, too, 50% of the time. So I, I made a decision that in about 2009, I was going to stop traveling. And I spent 17 years on the road, uh, and I spent 20-plus years in the trenches making movies uh, and for, you know, whatever, anywhere from 16 to 20 hours a day. So for seven days a week. I mean, it's that, that's the kind of work that, that I committed to. And that's how most people that do what I do for a living do. So um, at this point in my career, I don't. I don't travel. I don't work those kind of stupid hours. But I'm at a, a, a CFO level where um, I'm still responsible. I still work seven days a week. I'm still, I still have to be around seven days a week. But I don't travel the way I used to do. And the way I used to, I would go into a location. I was first in typically as a finance guy or as a line producer, and I was typically last out. So I would go into a location anywhere from on a small movie, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, and on a big movie, as many as 10 or 11 months. So, you know, I I made a Benji movie in 2003, and I lived in Ogden, Utah, um, locally from uh, February until September. And then I finally came home. And that's all I did. I worked on that one movie, and I was literally some. My day was split between the set and the office. I'm running around between the different locations and spending a lot of time on the phone. Sometimes traveling home or traveling to the distributor, but you know, it's a it's a hard life. It's not something you do when you have a family and you want to raise kids, unless you don't want to see your family or your kids. And that's just the reality of the movie business. And this notion of work-life, work-life balance is bullshit. You either work in Hollywood or you have a family. Those right. two are mutually exclusive. They're, you can have a family, but you're not going to see them. No, so. I, I understand that. I worked at, in uh, ath, college athletics, on, and um, it was you know, I was an athletic equipment manager, and we were the first people there and the last people to leave. And right. it was a strain on it was a strain on the family and you know your other relationships and whatnot. But you know, 
it was it was a, a job that I loved at the time, but it was definitely yeah. a strain. It's uh, also a business for young people. It sounds very similar to right. working in entertainment, whether it's music or features. There, I'm sure, and I'm sure there's other industries like it. I just don't have any experience in those. I've worked in Hollywood my entire career from the time I was 19 years old. So, even though you're not. Um on set, how close do you work with, like, the director or the, the assistant director or those the people who are actually on site filming and shooting and all those things? I don't work with those people at all, and I am perfectly happy not to <laughs> at this point in my career. Okay. The people who do are the producers. The, my clients are in the trenches with those people from the beginning when it's in development to when it's delivered and all the way through post and in physical production. And they have wives that are, uh, that are, that will cater to that, or they have families that will cater to that where their wives or husbands will hold down the fort, hold down the home. And, um, I just never, I didn't have that. So I had to pick one or the other. And uh, so the result of is I decided in 2009 I was not going to be that guy anymore, and I was fine with that. I did it for a long time. I met some amazing people. I've lived all over the world, and I've traveled into places and stood in architecture and met people that most folks never will have an opportunity to do, and um, I think that is something I would never change for the world, um, but I had had enough, and it was time for me to do something different and mix it up a little bit. And that was to be a little more sedentary and not be on the road all the time. Is is that, we were kind of talking before I hit record <laughs> on the phone, and uh, you were telling me about a story where you, you fired a bunch of clients to make your life yeah. easier. Is that when that happened? Yeah. yeah. It first, the first transition happened when I made the transition from being a line producer and being in the trenches, and that was in 2009. In 2008, I, I was flying back and forth every day between Los Angeles, I mean every week, between Los Angeles and, um, and Boston, Massachusetts. My uh, wife at the time was in a graduate program, and I was going back and forth because I'm still working here in L.A. Um, so I was flying back and forth, and I was glad to do it. Don't get me wrong. I was more than happy to. I love Boston, and I had a great experience. And um, I just decided in 2009 it was time to stop doing that. Um, it, up until that point, um, I was full bore doing this job. So I made the transition in 2009 to not travel as much. But I still wanted to make the income I was making, or at least close to it. Because working in film production is a good job. It's a great, it's a well-paying job. Mm-hmm. It's a high-paying job. And, but you give up certain uh, autonomy and freedom and individuality in doing that job and making that kind of money. And when I say good money, I mean like deep six-figure money. Um, not seven-figure money. That's actors, directors, and all the rest of them. There are some producers who do make that kind of money, but not in my line of work, at least not as a line producer. So um, I want, still wanted to make the money. So I was taking on a lot of clients, and I was taking on a lot of work. And after about five years of doing that, I looked around, and I was like, what am I doing? My life isn't any different. I'm home, but am I really home for my kid? And my, my daughter was three years old at the time, I think. And I, was, and I was like, is this really the life I want? And that's not why I came off the road and did the job, started pursuing the work as a CFO, which later I 
the job I found, um, I decided it was probably better that I just make less money, have a lot more time with my family. Mm -hmm. And I wound up going through the clients and I was like, if I'm going to reduce my client load or my workload, I'm going to get rid of the clients that I don't like. And that's how I, I went about firing half of my clients to get some life back. And I did it, as I said to you earlier, I did it based on email flow. I had my assistant rank, stack rank my clients of number of emails. And I had, look, they had 20 clients. I went and said, okay, top 10 clients with the most emails. You got, you got six months. I'm, you're going to need to find someone else to do this job for you. And um, I'm going to segue out in the next two months. My time needs to be reduced. And it was the best thing I ever did. Honestly, I, I didn't make as much money, but I, I had a lot more time a lot more freedom, and I made a good living, which was fine. Well, that, and that's the reason why I asked, because that's very interesting that you were able to do that, but also keep, you know, keep, uh, keep doing the job and keep making a living. Uh, earlier, yeah. earlier, you mentioned a, um, that you have a book. In our last minutes together here, can you kind of talk about that a little bit and how uh, my audience can maybe get a hold of your book. Well, the easiest way to get a hold of the book is, is at careers, or sorry, singular, career.timtortora.com. And my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. And the, the, I've written two books. Uh, the, the, the second book I wrote is about how to make it in Hollywood. How do you, how do you go from like a guy like me, knowing nobody, and building a network inside the industry so that you can become so that you can become connected to the industry in a way where you can make a living. Now, it's not luck. It is it is an endurance sport. It is a time intensive sport. But you have to understand how the industry is organized, who the players are, who's full of shit, and who's not. And the way you do that is largely by who has money to spread around on projects. And the people who have money are the producers who are working for the studios. And the way you figure that out is by going through, I walk you through an entire process of, you know, here's, here's, you have to pick a vertical you want to work in. You want to work in reality, you want to work in dramatic, hour, half hour, whatever. You have to decide what you want to do. Features, television, even that sort of broad, right? And then within each of those, what kind of TV and features do you want to do? And then you have to do a little bit of research, a lot of research. You're probably going to spend 20 or 30 hours researching the people on, on those shows. And you do it through a couple of databases that are available for free. And you're going to pick up names, and you're going to start to understand who are the players, the 100 people who work in that vertical making dramatic television, let's say. You want to work on uh, Pick a Show, Stranger Things. You then go do the research about the folks who do Stranger Things. Are you going to get to the Joss Whedons of the world? No way. Are you going to get to their assistant? Yeah, probably. Are you going to be able to network with them and hang out? You might be able to develop a relationship with them such that they can recommend you for another assistant job. You're going to start as an assistant. You're never going to come in. I shouldn't say never. It does happen. But we're talking about 1% of the people who come and work in Hollywood. And mostly it's directors and actors and to some extent writers. But you're not going to come in as a as anything other than an assistant. So another assistant might, ref, might um, make a referral for you because you've talked to them a few times. You've had drinks with them. You had coffee. You went to a movie. They became a friend of yours that then leads to another friend that leads to another friend so that you build a web of a network 
uh, that is built like a spider web that connects from one person to the next. And you understand who Joss Whedon is. You understand who works for him, who are the writers who, who he employs repeatedly, if you want to be a writer, who are the directors he uh, employs repeatedly. So you start to connect all these dots and you start to see names and you start to figure out who the industry, how the industry is structured. So that when you go do your informational interviews with those people that you've identified you want to connect with, and you should try to connect with them on social. They're all out there. You can do it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email. You can get emails, believe it or not, through all kinds of data brokers. And some of it you can get for free or for pretty inexpensively. Um, and you can cold email them. But you have, to be, you have to understand what their place in the world is. You have to understand that they don't have a lot of time. They're not going to read your script. They're going to be very focused and pointed. And you have to demonstrate that you understand the industry, that you're relevant, and you understand who they are and what they do. And that if you're a writer, you're not going to go to a director to pitch an idea. You're not going to go to a network and pitch an idea. You're going to go to another writer and say, hey, will you, will you tell me about your career? And that's how you build a network in the industry. And that's what my book talks about. And it walks people through that entire process. Well, you know, just looking through your, your website, uh, all the movies you've worked on <laughs> over the years, way too many of the lists, uh, all the people you've worked with you know if you go to, if you go to Tim, uh, Tim's site uh, you can definitely see all of that um, it is and it's t-i-m-t-o-r-t-o-r-a dot com and he has his books there and uh, all his film uh, credits and everything uh Tim, I want to thank you for taking time and talking to me because you were able to fill a gap in movie making that I did not know nor did I understand. Like I said, I yeah. I had one piece of what I got from my friend who's, you know, an assistant director and another piece from a high school uh buddy, I shouldn't call her a buddy, but um a friend then you know she's an actress in Hollywood, and yeah. uh, she's uh, she's a bit uh, a bit actress, and uh, but it's now knowing how it's all kind of how does the sausage gets made I guess I could say, and how it's all gets yeah. tied together. It's kind of, it's very interesting, and I really appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and. One of the things I, the reason I blog and the reason I write is I want people to understand what the industry is. There are hundreds of thousands, probably two or 300,000 people that work in Hollywood who do the jobs of grip, electric, camera, actor, writer, director, producer, all the things you see scroll at the end of the movie, those credits, mm -hmm. that's a person that does a particular job at some point in their career. That's available to people if you want it. It's not easy. The line is long. It's hard work. It's a young person's business, but it is fun. And I want people to understand if they're going to come do it. It is a business. It is a game. You have to figure out how to work in, compete in, and participate in, and build a network. And the day you stop building your network is the day your career begins to atrophy. And that is the most important part of our business. And I want people to understand how it actually works so they don't get ripped off by the Hollywood con man, which there are plenty. And they will steal your time your money, and they'll steal your stories and your ideas. So that's, that's my goal. That's the only reason I do it. Okay. 
uh, is there a, a way for people to contact you through social media or uh, whatnot? Yeah. The easiest way to get to me directly is through my site. On the bottom, on the right, there's a ask me any question form, and I pretty much um, answer all of those. If someone calls and asks me to read their script or finance their movie or will you read my idea, I, I honestly, I can't help you. But um, if you want to know how the industry is structured, you want to know how the business actually functions, just hit that form and it comes to me or my assistant, and I typically get them, and I respond to all of them, unless, of course, like I said, it's someone asking me to read a script or raise money. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Tim. This has been Tim Totora, Hollywood CFO, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Our summers are so short in Minnesota, it can be easy to forget about important safety measures. And when extreme heat is involved, safety is even more critical. There are a few things to remember to keep you and your loved ones, including your pets, safe and comfortable. One, remember to not leave your pets and kids in your vehicle. Two, always stay hydrated in hot weather. Three, avoid exercise during the hottest times of the day. Four, stay in air conditioning as much as possible. Five, when traveling, stay sky aware. Check the forecast and prepare for unsafe driving conditions, thunderstorms, and tornadoes. High temperatures kill hundreds of people every year, but most heat-related deaths and illnesses are preventable. If we all slow down, take some time, check on our loved ones, and enjoy the beautiful season. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything until you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. And I'm back to put a wrap on today's podcast. Again, I'd like to thank Tim Tora as he lists his information in the podcast. I will also have it on the um, on the synopsis for today's show. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to put out an email address for people to contact me, and it's J A Y B E E seven eight zero at comcast.net and again that's jb780 at comcast.net so for those who maybe have questions those who maybe want to sponsor maybe who may even have a guest idea but always remember I have the first and last right of refusal on guest ideas as I always state I can be heard on Podbean on Apple Podcasts uh, Overcast, and many other podcast sites. Again, tell a friend. Uh, if, you're, if you're not a follower, please follow. And look for the next episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game.
heart on Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django, J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.